Chapter Twenty One of the Story of a Modern Woman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of a Modern Woman by Ella Hepworth Dixon. Chapter Twenty One The World Wags On. Five years had passed. All day long the streets had been full of carriages going and coming from Buckingham Palace. The spring sunshine fell on the pink arms, the thin bare shoulders of young girls on the back seats of Brahms and closed barouches, which passed swiftly by, leaving a vision of a foam of tulle, an excited young face, a cascade of flowers, or the large complacent bosom of a chaperone. Some of these carriages stopped towards five o'clock at Lady Jane Ives in Portman Square. The drawing-room was already spread with shining satin trains, and heavy with the odour of slightly faded hothouse flowers, before the hostess herself appeared, for Lady Jane was presenting a niece, and had been late in getting away from the palace. One or two men, vaguely bored, strayed about with uncertain feet among the yards of satin and brocade which covered the floor and the women, in their nodding plumes and foolish trains, seemed conscious of their wrinkled throats and faded skins as they stood, with a somewhat forced smile, receiving the usual compliments. But very soon Lady Jane appeared, swimming into the room with her large smile and her ruby velvet train, and having behind her a young girl in white, with puffy pink cheeks and an alarmed air. "'My niece Victoria,' she announced to everyone, in her rapid, genial manner, "'presented to-day, my brother's girl, you know. "'Dear Victoria is so devoted to society. "'She is going to stay with me. "'It will be quite charming.' "'And Mr. Beaufort Flower, with huge white buttonhole, "'which accentuated the dingy yellow of his skin, "'and with several tell-tale wrinkles at the corners of his eyes, "'murmured to Mr. Bosanquet-Berry, as he gazed with half-closed lids at the new candidate for society's favours. "'I adore drawing-room teas. One sees so much of people, don't you know? And in the daylight, too, one gets such a good idea of what they are really like,' he tittered, turning to where Lady Blaythwaite's creamy white shoulders were illuminated by the full glare from the window, the sunlight sparkling on the diamond tiara round her forehead. "'She's got her best fender on,' said Mr. Bosanquet-Berry, with rising interest. "'By Jove! Did you ever see such jewels? And what a skin! She looks like some superb animal.' "'Oh, no, she don't,' whispered Bofi, in his acidulous voice. "'Animals never look depraved. And for my part, I don't admire her so much as all that. Poor Lady Blay is so odiously—' blatantly healthy the room was nearly full when mary came up the stairs a stout lady in green whose extremities looked extraordinarily large in her white coverings thrust a bouquet of spiked flowers in her eye as she reached the landing and then stared with all the impertinence of a certain kind of british matron when the girl stepped back annoyed oh dear miss earl said a shrill voice at the door do come in it's such a nice party. I wonder, continued Mr. Beaufort Flower, who entertained a good deal himself, why other people's parties are so much nicer than one's own. 
i suppose it is because one always knows so many more people at other people's houses who is here said mary who never troubled herself to laugh at his small witticisms all sorts of people there's lady blaythwaite looking magnificent in yellow he always made a point of praising other women when he talked to ladies in the pleasing hope that it would annoy them she never misses going to court once a year but really you know she's got to there's the duchess of birkenhead now he chattered on she's only been once since her marriage you know but then she needn't because she's so perfectly so entirely respectable and he disappeared with a delighted little wriggle in the crowd and a few minutes later mary saw him pouring his sub-acid compliments into lady blaythwaite's ear there was some attempt at animation in the rooms now there were crowds of ladies as well as those who had been to court and a hired pianist making tinkling sounds on a somewhat worn piano was endeavouring to impart a false air of gaiety to the affair the words the queen the princess heliotrope brocade exquisite diamonds and fearful crush were bandied about the room someone related a story that a colonial lady of much wealth had been turned away because she had worn tan covered gloves and an ancient legend even found listeners that a young girl had fallen over her train while backing from the royal presence a woman with pronounced jewish features who wore a smart bonnet and a french frock explained at some length to an indifferent group what had happened when she had been presented last year and as she stood talking to mr bosanquet barry who had as usual his air of not wishing to be detained the lady whom mary remembered in the old days as a player on the harp had placed a piece of music on the piano and was singing in an elderly threadbare voice and an accent which left much to be desired something which sounded like all long queer lay roaster lifting her eyebrows standing on tiptoe and slightly wriggling her shoulders as the song proceeded mary looked round the room it all seemed foolish enough the women with their naked yellow shoulders their torn veils and faded flowers the men slipping in and out in their neat frock coats murmuring scandal of the very people whose hands they had just pressed she could not bear the house since alison's death the rooms seemed noisy and yet empty without her it was the same outwardly for here were the usual crowd chattering smiling whispering as they passed in and out and only she mary seemed to remember lady jane to be sure had been immersed in grief for some months after the death but the next season she had reappeared in mauve and black and had resumed her round of drums and dinners all that had happened five years ago this was the second niece that she had successfully launched into society the first had made an excellent match and lady jane only hoped in confidence to all her intimate friends that victoria would not think of marrying quite so soon for it was charming she said it made her feel quite young again to have a girl to take out she never she complained had been able to make her poor darling alison take a proper interest in society only an eccentric intermittent one and people naturally dislike that allons qu'il les urged the lady at the piano 
but her voice not being very strong was inaudible at the end of the song a termination which was received thankfully with a decent little murmur of applause dear sir dunlop cried lady jane in her deep genial tones at the door how good of you to find time to drink a dish of tea let me introduce you to my niece victoria presented to-day and so devoted to society go in go in you will find all your pretty friends in there and the face of the fashionable doctor smooth smug successful was seen here and there chatting in the crowd if the mouth was still hard the smile was more insinuating than ever a voluptuous feminine atmosphere surrounded him as he moved about as pretty women bent forward to whisper meeting his eyes with an intimate look or laying detaining half-caressing fingers on his arm all of these charming ladies had been were now or would be his patients his reputation had grown apace in the last five years no one could have the megrims in belgravia or mayfair without consulting sir dunlop strange reports of his approaching marriage were constantly circulated but at present it would seem there was a barrier in the way for he was understood to be devoted to lady blaythwaite and indeed as he neared the window where she was still standing the circle of black coats which surrounded her dissolved and they stood practically alone looking out on the square the lady slowly turned her handsome prominent eyes upon him and with a long gaze which took in every detail of her radiant health and beauty he slipped his nervous sinewy fingers round her wrist in the shadow of the curtain mary was standing near the door trying to get a breath of air when the pale town-bred face of perry jackson was seen ascending the stair but she instinctively stepped aside not knowing whether he would care to speak to her she heard lady jane overwhelm him with pretty phrases for she was proud of the portrait he had painted of her that year and adored a new celebrity but perry jackson did not come near mary and it was with a somewhat forced smile that he returned her greeting i have lost my kind little friend she said to herself with a certain bitterness and then as vincent hemming appeared in the crowd she said to herself with the consistency of a woman here at any rate is someone who cares for me still a little bit the face of vincent hemming was that of an irritated disappointed man he was however as perfectly dressed as elaborately suave as of old as he stopped to speak to several dowagers on his way upstairs it was always half a pleasure half a pain to her to meet him and there were times when she felt that the acquiescent feminine smile was a little forced as she talked to him at some crowded party or called on his wife at queen's gate hemming had made but a brief appearance in the house of commons for he had been unseated almost immediately his agents it would seem not having been discreet in the matter of beer and he had had no opportunity of entering the house since meanwhile mrs vincent hemming had not made herself popular in london society and her husband had always a somewhat uneasy air when she was in the same room lady jane ives for one openly snubbed her and vincent had arrived at that stage in an unsuccessful marriage when a husband is not offended at being asked out to dinner without his wife to any other woman but mary the thing would have been a personal triumph 
"'Here is that poor Mr. Hemming that you threw over,' whispered Lady Jane to Mary. "'I did not ask his impossible wife. I don't know how a man with such delightful cultured tastes could marry such a person. If it had only been an American now, an American or an Australian, then nobody would have minded what she said or did.' and in a few minutes Mary found herself talking, in a conventional voice, of the rain and the fine weather, of politics and the park, with the man who had once been so much to her. Sometimes, indeed, as he took her down to supper, or handed her a cup of tea with his little formal manner, she wondered how, in those past years, he had been able to make her suffer so, but Mary was beginning to understand that women love most of all the men who have done them an irreparable wrong. His face looked grey and tired, and it was with a visible effort that he had found phrases suitable to be overheard by the nodding plumes, the bare shoulders, and the limp nosegays around. "'You look tired. Are you ill?' she said suddenly, in her old sweet manner. For a moment Mary had forgotten. "'No, it is nothing.' "'I am a little out of sorts, I think,' he said, avoiding her eyes. Then he added, after a pause, looking straight at the carpet, "'You don't know, you can't conceive what worries I have.' She said nothing. There was nothing she could say. But he looked miserable, and all her tender, womanly little heart rushed out to him. "'Mayn't I get you a cup of tea?' he said suddenly, offering her his arm and turning with an abrupt movement towards the door. Downstairs there was the usual struggle for a cup, a sugar-basin, a spoon. "'Why mayn't I come and see you sometimes, Mary?' he said, in his voice which meant so much more than the mere words. "'Oh, Vincent, you've put cream in my tea, and I can't bear it,' said Mary, with a comical little frown. "'I'm so sorry, and you don't like sugar, either. How could I have forgotten it?' said Hemming, wafting it away in his grand manner. But Mary, he continued, when he had battled successfully for another cup, why won't you read me some of your work? I used not to be a bad critic, though I do little enough myself now. Why can't we see each other sometimes like that? All the blood left her face. It was horrible, horrible of him to talk so. But he must not even guess that she cared. Of course, she said after a pause, during which they had been pushed apart by the stout lady with the spiky bouquet, who had come downstairs and was forcing her way with a business-like air to the buffet. I suppose you can come and be victimized by manuscripts, if you want to. When, Mary? Oh, she said quickly, not tomorrow. I've got to go to the Strand. But the day after? Aren't you well? Let me look at you, said Hemming as they went up to the drawing-room again. Come into the light, he continued in an authoritative tone. I can't have you getting ill. There was a movement of departure in the crowd. The monstrous trains were being caught up. Bouquets were seen moving towards the door. Mr. Beaufort Flower, slipping in and out, was murmuring a last impertinence to a pretty woman on her way downstairs. Lady Jane was beginning to look tired, for at seventy, as she said, one wasn't in the first blush of youth. And Miss Victoria, whose puffy cheeks had assumed a purplish hue, announced to everyone, as they made their farewells, that she and her aunt were going to a ball that night, which she expected would be splendid fun. 
Mr. Bosanquet Berry, who approved of Miss Earle as an occasional contributor, because he met her in what he called smart houses, bestowed on her a brief vision of all his gleaming teeth as he squeezed her hand and passed on without a word. "'The day after tomorrow, Mary,' demanded Vincent Hemming, as they stood irresolutely on the doorstep among the little crowd of drab-coated footmen. She hardly noticed Mr. Bofeeflower as he skipped past her down the steps, tripping into his brougham and slamming the door with a vicious little click, nor the rather shrill voice in which there was a triumphant sound giving the direction, "'To the Bachelors' Club!' Mary stood silent for a moment, gazing at the stone steps. After all, why should she not see Vincent, her old friend, her father's friend? She felt nervous and unstrung. It would be very sweet to have him there, to talk to him in a sensible way. She wanted to ask his advice about Jimmy, for her young brother, who had duly got his exhibition at Magdalen, had done little more during his stay at Oxford than entangle himself with, and finally marry, a scout's daughter. Living by herself in lodgings, she never saw anyone. There seemed to be no one now whose advice she could ask. "'Yes, come,' she said suddenly, in a high, clear tone, and, as she went down the steps and hurried across the square, she was startled herself by the note of exultation in her voice. End of chapter 21 Read by Lisa Reichert